Hello, everyone, and welcome again to We Are Here Tomorrow. I'm Zach. And I'm John Mundell. And today, we are going to be talking about some internal combustion engines. Right, John? You got that right. So, Zach, as, as always, you and I are experimenting with how we run the podcast. And mm-hmm. so the last two episodes, we covered expansive topics and discussed the technology emerging in them to influence that wide domain. But... For today's podcast, we wanted to try a more narrow approach and branch out from there. And we we stumbled upon maybe the perfect topic. So let's explain how we got there first. So Zach, uh, you know I love to listen to podcasts while I work out. <laughs> okay. Well, a few months back before right. the pandemic, I was at the gym and I'm listening to a podcast that's discussing Formula One car racing. Now, I have zero experience with car racing sports. They're not my MO. The closest thing I have are my nights at Talladega Speedway, by which, of course, I mean watching Will Ferrell star in Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Great movie. Shake and bake, baby. Shake and bake. So I'm at the gym, about to continue working out, when the podcast I'm listening to drops a fact about recent Formula One racing that stuns me. I quickly put the weights back and and rest it down and, and rush to rewind the podcast, I listen again and confirm that I heard them right the first time. This fact, how haven't I heard this before? Why isn't Formula One shouting this fact from the rooftops? And how quickly can I get this fact and the technology behind it into the podcast? <laughs> and Zach, that's why we're here today. So Formula One racing has followed some unlikely paths to influence our lives in the next 10 to 20 years. But before we share this fact and the implications, we need to provide some background first. So Zach, talk to me about engines and cars and stuff that you know more about than I do. (laughs) All right, all right, all right. Um, So how far do we want to go back? Pretty far. So the engine never, there was never quite a single day where like internal combustion didn't exist, then internal combustion did exist. So back around the 1700s, let's say 1700 to be exact, the steam engine um, was being developed. And over the next like half century, it just took over the world. The steam engine is very is similar to internal combustion in that it's a thermodynamic engine at its core. You're doing some sort of thermodynamic process to pull out work into, for most of these things, turning wheels in either a factory or an engine or something like that. Right. So these engines, steam or this internal combustion, which we're going to get into, they're basically turning some sort of fuel, whether that's wood or water moving into spinning wheels, correct? Yes. 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 Okay. Yeah. To put in perspective what that meant for the world, the steam engine was one of the significant players in the industrial revolution. So it's really what's brought us to where we are today with just technology in general. So, whereas steam gets its energy from heated water, which turns into steam, runs past a turbine and spins it, the internal combustion engines harness the energy stored in the molecular bonds of the fuel molecules, an explosion. So, over the latter part of the 1700s and through the first half of the 1800s, there was this gradual evolution of these thermodynamic engines. Quite honestly, there was a ton of different experimentations 
with different types of fuel, different types of compressions, different types of gears and pulleys, and, and honestly, everything you can imagine. Right. You're basically saying the the unit that does this combustion that turns those fuels into energy, they were just changing a bunch of the parameters and making mm-hmm. it look different and making it look better. Is that one way right. to think about it? Yeah. And to this point, they knew this action well enough out of, from practice to design these design these different machines. But a lot of this was these eccentric inventors just trying different things. A lot of these, like the theories, a lot of the theories of thermodynamics hadn't been invented or realized or fully fleshed out at this point in time. So scientists are just messing around. They don't actually know why things are doing things, but they're changing things and improving. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is far and out the most steampunky time of any time in the world. So, right, right. Yeah, you can kind of get a get a picture of what's going on. Um, I personally think think that sounds kind of cool to be an inventor at that time, but I also like would hate scurvy. So I don't know. <laughs> That's the trade off: scurvy, steampunk. Right on. Go on. <laughs> so in eighteen twenty four is when we first start to pull together the necessary math to pull some of these designs from more practical trials and errors into a more fully realized conceptual design. So Carnot's theorem, or, or what you call like a Carnot engine. And Carnot is one of these steampunk inventors, Mr. Yeah. Carnot? Okay. Yeah, he's more, he's more of a math guy. Okay. But anyways, he develops this theory of idealized gas engines, which is essentially what a steam engine is, what an internal combustion engine is. At the high level, what it's doing, what his theory is doing, is setting an upper limit for the amount of energy you can pull out of a certain engine. Okay. From from the fuel itself that's going in, whether that's the steam or the gasoline? Uh, from the entire system in general. Okay, fair. Yes. Go on. If you Google combustion engine or thermodynamic engine or anything within thermodynamics, you're going to see in the upper right-hand corner of Wikipedia a very simple picture of a thermodynamic engine. At the highest level, there's a hot reservoir and there's a cold reservoir. Out of the heat moving from hot to cold, because that's the only way heat can move, from the heat moving from hot to cold, you can pull energy out that way. With a turbine. That's where the turbine yes, sits? Yes, with or? a turbine okay. or with a piston or whatever whatever process sure. you're doing. Sure. Yeah, that's okay. kind of where these thousands of inventions live, is how you're pulling out that energy. It's like blowing on a pinwheel. It's rotating. Just do the air moving. Gotcha. Right. That air is moving from, from hot to cold. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that is, by the way, that is the second law of thermodynamics. Just okay. that heat can only spontaneously move from hot to cold, if you want to go from cold to hot, like which is what is done like in your fridge, for example, it just requires energy. That's why you have to plug it into the wall, Oh, you know, essentially at a, <laughs> at a very, as a 10,000 foot level. Sounds good. Yeah. So that was 1824. We move forward about 35 years to 1860. That's when a Belgian named Etienne Lenoir produces what I would consider or what most researchers consider the first true internal combustion engine. It was what we call like gas injected or gas fueled. So you're physically putting gas into a combustion chamber, combusting it, firing a piston down that's turning a crankshaft. The very, very fundamentals of what we what you would see in a normal car engine today. And the internal portion is just that it's contained within a small space such that when the combustion, the explosion happens, all of the energy, as much as possible, is converted to something. Right, is converted to... Spinning the wheel, hopefully. 
Uh, yep, exactly. Yeah. Converted to a piston, which spins a crankshaft, which spins a wheel. Yep, okay. exactly. Another important aspect of this is that it was um, the design was defined enough that they could produce them in number. I don't want to say mass production because they weren't working on the assembly line or anything like that, but they were able to produce multiples of this same quote unquote design of engine. And for the record, this is also a topic that's a little bit argued across the field. A lot of people, some like to say the British actually got to an internal combustion engine first. Some like to say the Persians did it uh, hundreds of years before everyone like that. It's just, you know, it's a little bit refuted. What we can say for sure is that in 1860, Lenoir did a cool thing with this engine. Now, that being said, when you're picturing this engine, don't picture what's under the, the hood of your Prius right now, John. So the engine was an 18 liter engine. Ooh, that's probably nine times more than my vehicle. Yeah, right. <laughs> so an 18 liter engine and it's running on illuminating gas, which is not really like what we what the gasoline we use today. It was what was actually pumping through the street lamps at the time. The focus wasn't really on explosion. It was more focused on a luminous burn. Right. So it wasn't any it wasn't even close to what should be really used for. This for is getting back to the steampunks and them just piecing together stuff from other people. Okay. Exactly. So this engine also ran at about two horsepower and was about four percent thermally efficient. Four percent. Okay, and and two horsepower, that's probably two hundred times less than some of the quick hot rod cars of our modern era, right? Oh I, yeah, I would say like if you see a more of a muscle car out there, you're looking at like six to seven hundred horsepower. Right on. So like, yeah, your standard, uh, your very standard car is going to get 200 times that easy. Two horsepower made sense because it was two horses kind of like slow, but it, it was better than one horse. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, OK. okay. Right. So they did it, but it wasn't very efficient at all. So there was room to improve. That's how we'll look at it. So from that point in time. While Lenoir was the inventor, I will say, Nicolas Otto, and you'll recognize his name from what from the Otto cycle, which is another one of these engine cycles. You um, might recognize it. I don't. But sorry. Go on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yep. So over between 1861 and over the next 15 years, he and Lenoir worked together to revise the design, optimize the design, come up with something better. Quite honestly, um, like I said, they had room to improve. So they were able to come up with a four-stroke engine, more similar to what we see today, um, using a compressed charge, which we'll get into later. And then they also tweaked where you're pulling out energy to get this cycle. So as we, we kind of continue from 1876, which is where, where you would say that the more mass manufacturability of these engines kind of takes off, um, where they start becoming more mainstream, they start being implemented across the world in different industrial scenes. It continues to evolve as, you know, like I said, a fundamental source across the world. There are these different iterations of the engines, and this actually then goes off into turbines and airplanes and a whole different section that we are not going to cover today. But yeah, the, the evolution kind of continues to this, this very day, but I think you had a note about, about a different type of force evolution, I guess? Yeah, so fast forward from, you're saying, 19, 1876, and they're starting to make engines that they could repeat, and they're improving it. Well, starting about the 1910s, just before that, Ford and his Model T, that's when that comes out, the first mass-produced car mm -hmm. with the factory assembly line. And, and just as a 
a line in the sand, uh, something to consider. The Model T, the fuel economy was about 13 to 21 miles per gallon. Honestly, not terrible. <laughs> yeah, wow, that's that actually surprised me, yeah. It was a very different car than we have today, but it had decent efficiency. So what happens past that after the Model T? Right. So then we we get into the early and mid 1900s, and there's a couple different innovations surrounding the engine. Uh, it's not not innovations to do with the internal combustion. Um, so we've done a huge, a ton of legwork in optimization of the fuel, optimization of the different mechanical components. So in general, they've really narrowed down, quote unquote, narrowed down the changes that they were going to make at that point in time. And I think you see this a lot with different with different fundamental technologies like the engine or like the motor, where you'll see an increase in in internal innovation in that product. And then you'll see the accessories that go around it catch up and then you'll see them kind of monkeying up, right? Not parallel with each other but consequentially from each other. Okay. But so anyways, there was a there was a rash of innovations kind of surrounding the internal combustion engine. So in 1955, fuel injectors hit the scene, and we're going to talk about fuel injectors in depth more later, but in 1955, what they did was dramatically increase your reliability and the efficiency of your engine. They did that uh, by more evenly balancing out the amount of fuel used to make that pop, that initial explosion uh, in your inside your engine. In the early days, you, you and I say the early days like such a such a millennial. <laughs> but in the early days, you may had have to choke a car or choke a, an engine. And I'm sure on older like farm equipment, for example, you still have to choke the engine when you start it up. And what you're doing essentially is choking the flow of fuel into the into the, the cylinders into the engine. Meaning you're stopping the flow. You're saying like, hold on for a second. Uh, you're you're widening it, so allowing more okay. fuel in or allowing less fuel in. So yeah, too much of that gas, and you flood your engine. You can't get combustion because there's actually so much gas in there, and then too little, and the engine dies because it can't keep cycling. So now we can kind of get rid of that that imprecise choking of that flow, and now these fuel injectors are precisely injecting exactly the right amount of fuel into each cylinder so all the explosions are or all the combustions are standardizing you're using much much less fuel you're able to predict very easily how much fuel you're using at that point in time for example Um, so it just ensured a more predictive and regulated experience the entire time Uh, and so mercedes-benz actually debuted this by going across the country and just breaking a breaking a marathon record with one of their cars. But so fast forward not more than seven years to 1962, and we debuted the turbocharger. So the turbocharger is covering kind of the opposite side of things, where the fuel injector is handling the fuel. The turbocharger is making sure that there's enough air or oxidizer in your explosion. So is that something that I should maybe explain? Yeah, let me let me maybe just try my hand at it. So in basic chemistry, ninth grade or whatever it was, we learned that you need three things to have an explosion or have a fire is probably how we talked about it back then. You need oxygen, you need a fuel source, whether that's gasoline or diesel fuel, whatever, and you need a 
spark. You need something that can create the condition that will ignite the fuel in the oxygen. And then those two things will go boom, explode, expand, and you have your combustion explosion. Yeah, it really is about just making it go the most boom you can with those with those three ingredients. So like you said, John, we've got the air, number one, which is our oxidizer that brings in your oxygen. Um, you've got your number two, you've got your fuel, which is the gas or whatever we're using in the car. And number three, we've got the ignition, which is our spark. So coming around to turbochargers, turbochargers are handling that first thing, that, that oxygen, that the air. It's through a... Another fluid dynamics law we don't necessarily have to talk about. Um, it in- dramatically increased the amount of air flowing into your engine. So you can try and make sure as much as possible that you have enough air to explode as much fuel as you can. Okay. So that's kind of how you're looking at it as like we have, a, you know, 100 fuel molecules. We want to get X number of oxygen molecules in there as well. Right, because you fear if you don't have enough oxygen in this this chamber that we're talking about and you have a spark, you might only use, say, 80% of your fuel. And then some of that fuel will go wasted. It's just going to leave the chamber in this stroke cycling system. Right. So you lose out and you just basically throw away fuel. Right. And exactly. Yeah, you're never quite going to be able to use all the fuel. Okay, so fast forward in here. We are getting into what I think a lot we probably consider more the modern day engine, right? Right. Um, Kind of, you know, we're moving into the 70s and there starts to be a larger view on air and the pollution that we're actually producing with these engines. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll kind of pick up the story there. So in the early 1970s, some people I'm sure consider early 1970s cars were peak car. This is the era of the V8 engines, the gas guzzling, the land yachts, as people call their cars. They're very long. They're huge. They're heavy. They also have a miles per gallon of about 12 to 14 on average, which is crazy low. Remember, the Model T car was 13 to 21. So not great. Uh, But we had plenty of oil and gasoline until in 1973, some Arab countries did not like that the United States were supporting Israel in, I believe, the Yom Kippur War. So the Arab petroleum exporting countries decided that, hey, you love, you Americans love your cars, big cars and oil. Mm-hmm. Well, we we provide you a lot of oil. So we are actually going to get mad at you and have an oil embargo. We're not going to send you any oil. So you're suddenly going to have a crunch on how much oil you have in supply. So predictably prices go way up and and it was crazy during this time so okay zach imagine this you're in 1973 um you've got this massive lovely hot rod of a car it's your baby yes and you drive up to the gas station in your pride and joy to find a hundred other cars in line to get gasoline Uh, the car in front of you is parked and the driver is sitting on his hood he's nice he calls out to you to explain the situation that the station has no gas, but they might be getting a shipment in the next hour or two. Me and my mutton chops are upset. Okay. Yeah. Do you wait? Uh, so, so you wait and you eventually pay modern day prices, say $150 for a tank of gas when normally things are like 
$30. Huge, 5X difference. Very, very expensive. Uh, the crunch was tight. That's why there's 100 cars waiting. Mm-hmm. And honestly, this is kind of hard to conceive. But if you want to think about today's time, uh, you could picture instead of gasoline and gas stations, you think of toilet paper and uh, grocery stores, essential stores during this corona pandemic. There's runs on gasoline. So what does that do? Obviously, the United States can't live in this forever. So two years later, finally, the U.S. Congress forces car makers to roughly double their miles per gallon by 1985, a decade later. They have to make moves. Doubling a fuel economy in such a quick time takes a lot, a lot of design, et cetera. So finally, in the late 1970s, just a few years later, after this ruling, smaller cars, smaller engines, less powerful engines, those all debut off the line and are replacing these big, beautiful land yachts that are just guzzling gasoline. Mm-hmm. So efficiency spikes, I'm, I'm sure seemingly they got to this doubling of fuel economy or, or close, but there wasn't really a change to the engines that you'd been talking about. They they weren't focusing in their few years to improve that way. John, do you, do you know what the reaction was like in uh, by car companies or by the public when they made this when they made this ruling? Yeah, I don't really know too much about the ruling itself. I'm sure some people thought it was just necessary. Mm -hmm. But I do know that people did not love these small, low-power cars. They they missed, for sure, the power and the the hot rod ability. So there was – people weren't just accepting their tiny – cars the world and saying this is the future they, right. they wanted to return to the peak car past okay gotcha to the golden era yeah that was a uh, 1975-ish if we fast forward kind of enter our modern era i'm actually bring this to 2006 okay so, we so 2006 uh the the talk of the time was al gore's inconvenient truth oh yes. the movie about uh, a documentary about global warming i.e what we call climate change which was also a key political issue yes yes in fact uh that 1975 u.s fuel economy legislation that we had talked about mm-hmm. finally 42 years later in 2007 it finally gets updated to be even more stringent pushing people for more and more fuel economy okay. in the u.s that's how we kind of handled it. Now, Europe was a little bit different. So Europe, they were also looking to improve uh, global warming. They were kind of doing it through the lens of improving carbon emissions. That's a big factor that leads to global warming in this 2007, 2008 time frame. Also, you might remember, if you were alive, our listeners, which probably everyone was, <laughs> in 2007, 2008, uh, we had a lovely global financial crisis where the economies took a real big dive and people are out of jobs and and a lot of unemployment, et cetera. So in the U.S. and in other places, too, the banks, these giant institutions were receiving these massive uh, um, packages mm-hmm. of money to bail them out. Well, in the in Europe, the automakers, there's a lot of automakers in Europe. They also wanted to bail out. I actually think that's the same in the U.S., but Europe is a little bit interesting. So the European government wanted lower carbon emissions and the car makers wanted money so they decided hey we'll we'll come to a truce here the government will give the automakers money for the bailout if the car makers agree to very strict emission standards moving forward so the car makers had to 
scrap their plans for future cars and change their roadmap, as they call it, to be way more lower emission cars. Hmm. So this, of course, because they had to change everything so quickly, things weren't in their plan. They needed a lot of research and development money to figure out how they can even make these lower emission cars. <laughs> yeah. They couldn't really do, if you've been to Europe, you know that the cars are smaller and smaller engines relative to the U.S., so it's not like they could have pulled that trick that the U.S. did. You're saying by just decreasing the engine size even more. Exactly. Okay. Yep, that's the trick. Okay. So this is actually where Formula One, Formula One car racing comes into play. So Formula One, also known as F1, this is... It's kind of like indie car racing of the world where you have these cars that are racing around a track. It's not like NASCAR, where NASCAR, uh, people consider it 1960s trucks racing around a track, like old technology, slow, inefficient. Instead, these are really powerful, more of the hot rod type of cars that are very technologically advanced and span the world. Tons of money are put into these cars every year. Your average team, there's, I think there's 10 teams, puts in hundreds of millions of dollars uh, each year for their cars. And a lot of that is going into improving the engines and the cars that they're driving. And for the longest time before this 2007, 2008, F1 had been optimizing for cars that were fast and fierce. And they had some driving safety uh, optimizations in there as well because it was very dangerous they were going so fast. We're talking about averaging 215 miles per hour and it's open cab, so you don't have the big protector of rolling over, etc. That is absolutely crazy to me. I, I, in, in the research to this article, or to this uh, podcast rather, I was listening to another podcast where they were talking to an older F1, what I would call like an old school F1 driver. And he was talking about how he and a lot of other drivers were very disappointed when they stopped doing like fully open cab or when they started like protecting like further around the head and stuff like that. And it's just crazy to me hear these guys like... I don't know, ride against something that I would say is so basic. <laughs> yeah, you'd have, Zach's kind of alluding to this, people would die um, every yeah. year for the most part. Not truly, probably, but many years before they started optimizing for better helmet technology. And there's this kind of semi, uh, almost like roll cage that they now have on these cars. I think it's called the, the Hans or the Halo. One of those two things. This is me not knowing too much about cars, but... Very much safety was an issue, but low emissions were not at all on the docket. That was not something that these these cars were focusing on. But so bring us back to the U- the European car makers are trying to get money somewhere to uh, put it into low emission vehicles so they can meet this government restriction that they agreed to. So uh, they said, hey, the car companies are running a lot of these F1 teams. They're thinking, hey, let's pull out our money from the, or pull down at least the money from these Formula One teams and use that money to fuel this low emission research that they need to figure out how to make engines to put in these new cars. So Formula hey, One... I'm sorry, you're saying, so the, the car manufacturers are pulling money out of F1 in order to fund this, to fund their internal R&D. Right, okay. exactly. That gotcha. was... That was 
a, a possible plan, a probable plan. Right. So Formula One governing body, they see this coming and they say, oh boy, if they pull out their money, these car manufacturers, uh, not only is that going to lower the race quality and fans are going to leave and sponsors will leave. Also, it kind of shows that we are some relic of the past where we're not efficient at all and we're kind of getting a bad branding as a result. And maybe this would mean that Formula One would collapse in some way or become a shell of its former self. Right. Yeah. If if you're seeing like commercial cars often produce with better technology, like uh, that's kind of a knock on on the prestige, right? Right. Especially for a group that consider themselves very technologically advanced. So what F1 did is they voluntarily committed to changing their rules to force F1 cars, the teams, the automakers, um, to win by making low emission uh, R&D advances. So they basically said, hey, you you can only use so much fuel uh, per race, hmm. so you got to figure okay. out how to drive just as fast and faster uh, on this amount of fuel. Previously, they didn't have restrictions on how much fuel they use per race. That's really cool, yeah. So... Yeah, the long and the short of it is that the car makers decide to stay in Formula One and they are able to fund this low carbon emission, these really efficient engines through their for the road cars, through their racing cars in F1. Yeah. Good job, Formula One. That's a really great idea. Yeah, yeah, right. So of course these companies are making advances, and those advances, those two thousand eight, have started to come to fruition, and we can kind of understand what's finally coming of that agreement and project forward. Okay. So is that is that are we kind of like walking so that was the beginning of that of that process and we're kind of seeing the fruits of those labors today? We're seeing the fruits of those labors today in F one race cars. Not necessarily our cars yet, we'll get to that. Let's look at the technology. Zach, you're going to talk about the in-engine innovations, and then I'm going to talk about some of the out-of-engine innovations. So, internal to the engine, at the very bottom line, we want more boom for our buck. And that sounds ridiculous and reductive and simplistic, but that's what it is. We want more combustion or a more powerful explosion, a more powerful combustion for the least amount of fuel cost, right? Yeah. So in general, when we're looking at these things, they've optimized fuel. That's not something that John and I are really going to talk about. There are definitely hundreds of innovations in fuel technology that you could look into, but it's not something that we did, correct? Correct. And so when you're pulling back from the fuel and you're looking at the engine, the next most obvious place to look is how are we burning that fuel? To touch back on what we were talking about previously with the turbocharger, we were talking about you know making sure that we burn as much as possible. We want to burn 99.99% of that fuel, right? Right. We're going to talk about two, two different ways that the, the F1 side of things has come up with, the F1 strategy. And then we're also going to talk about a super interesting commercial advance that's come out of Mazda, um, just to kind of see where, where different, different players are taking us. So the first strategy is what came out of this these F1 regulations and this F1 R&D, and that is the pre-chamber jet ignition. So rather than me trying to paint a pretty picture, I do not have the, the gift of the Mundall analogy. So uh, instead, I'm going to have to rely some more on gifts that we're going to include in the show notes. 
So I'm going to be calling them GIF 1 and GIF 2. Well, we want you to click on the GIF and, and watch the pretty animations, but I'm going to give a quick explanation of what's happening here sure. in these GIFs. Yeah, can I just pause real quick? Absolutely. If anyone emails us and tells us it's GIF, just please unsubscribe. Anyways, <laughs> continue. So in, in uh, GIF, not GIF 1, we have a bunch of components moving around, but what we see is... Uh, some fuel is going into a small little space. Uh, the fuel is exploding. It's turning into this lovely orange color, which is pushing down the floor of the space. It's making the space bigger. That pushing down is rotating a bunch of gears. And this is the, the wheel rotating that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, and eventually that the floor of that space is going back up, which is pushing out uh, the the gas, the the smoke, think, um, and then it's sucking down more the exhaust, air. Yep. yep, yep, and it's sucking down more fuel. And the next thing, and it just repeats. So boom, push, air goes out. Boom, push, air goes out. Kind of in this four stroke that we talked about. Right, right, and yeah, John, you you literally you essentially just described in layman's terms just a four stroke engine. So yep, that's that's right on. I love that. Should I explain gift two right now? Uh, yes, and just to. Just to reiterate, these both are what you're going to find in your typical car engine. Um, in your, If you go out and open, pop open your car, you're probably going to find these if you have a car from the, the mid-2000s. So this is not an example of the pre-chamber jet ignition, but we're going to be using these as touchstones. Yes, but, this is the baseline. This is how right. an engine typically works. So yeah. in GIF 2, we're looking down this black space. We're actually looking down at the... Um, the space where the explosion happens and we've got a very slow-mo camera it looks like and what they're showing is that the spark that we talked about that's needed to get the explosion going it's starting at one side of this clear space with the fuel and the air and it's igniting and slowly spreading across the rest of the space so it's not like the uh match is lit everywhere at once it's spreading somewhat slowly right so yeah so that's where i want to jump off is stay looking at gift two in, unless you're driving please do not look at these if you're driving <laughs> please wait um anyways so if you're looking at gift two instead of thinking about these explosions inside the engine as one single large explosion imagine them as millions and millions of tiny tiny explosions so like we said, that energy is stored in, in these, these molecular bonds. It's at the tiny little explosions, essentially, at that, at that level. Think of it that way. So for every combustion to use as much energy as possible, we want one single large push, right? We want all those explosions to build off each other perfectly. Why, why one? Why couldn't they happen over a half second? So... Essentially, the smaller amount of time you can fit the energy into, the more work you get out of it. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, it's literally a it's literally a, a ratio. So yeah, if we can if we can expend all the energy in a very tiny amount of time all right away, we're gonna get a much larger push. In addition, what you're gonna hear, okay, if you if you kind of go further and look into this topic more, you're gonna hear about the concept of knocking. And what knocking is is essentially losing energy due to explosions outside of this range right outside of this really tiny this tiny window if we if when we start an explosion we get a combustion much earlier than the rest of the chamber it's going to be called a pre-ignition knock 
and those are, from what I've read, those are okay in certain circumstances. Whereas a post-ignition knock is when you actually hear a secondary explosion, a smaller secondary combustion in the chamber after the majority of the gas has already combusted. So you're thinking like, oh, I just heard a second smaller explosion that's not pushing in the same direction at all as my main explosion. Okay. So yeah, that's that's what our focus is, to get rid of the knocking, to, to make our explosions all happen very uniformly, very close together. Like it rolls across that frame in frame two. Think about that as losing energy kind of every, every quote unquote second as you're watching that go. Mm-hmm. So the pre-chamber jet ignition system comes in. And what that system is doing is replacing that spark plug. And rather... It's almost like flipping a spray paint can upside down in the top of the gas or in the top of the combustion chamber. So you put a lot of fuel in a very small, tiny little cap space and you light it and it actually shoots a jet of fire, a spark around the entire top layer. Right. So you're taking a a teeny bit a percent of that fuel that you normally use and you're putting it in a very small room an attic let's say at the top of this this larger room below and you are lighting a fire there it's causing a boom and because you have some uh you have some let's see holes in your ceiling um in in the floor you the the flames jet out and cover the entire or a vast majority of that room below which is full of the rest of the gasoline rather than having just a tiny spark at the top of the room that would slowly spread you have this jet of flame spreading throughout the room of gasoline right so rather than having that point uh you're having that layer go the wavefront is moving forth as one wavefront as one flat area rather than a 3d wavefront does that kind of make sense Mm -hmm. okay yeah, I'm with you. With this system, we're able to to greatly, greatly increase the efficiency and the amount, number one, in the amount of power we're pulling out, and number two, the amount of fuel that we're burning. So because we're lighting it this way, we're actually able to have what's called lean fuel. It's less fuel to air, um, so it's it's less fuel in your combustion chamber than we would normally see without this this jet ignition. Right, and less fuel just means more boom per fuel if you can get yeah, the same amount of yeah. boom out of it. More boom per your fuel, exactly. A lot of people in, I guess, in the industry, I don't even want to say in, in the industry because it makes us sound like we're a narc, um, but the the engine will be what's called sipping gas because you're able to use much less per explosion, sparingly use your fuel much more than the spark plug equivalents. So that's pre-chamber jet ignition. That's... Uh, one of the ways that we can more easily get more boom for our for our buck. And that's what Formula One came up with. Another way we can do it is what Mazda is developing in their SkyActiveX system, rather, because it really is a whole system. It tackles the same issues of that, of that single point of ignition versus that layer of ignition, um, but it handles it in a different way. So there is a video. Uh, again, we'll include in the show notes. That's a great visual aid if you'd like to look afterwards. Um, but I'm just going to explain it at a, at a conceptual level. So it takes the advantages of the diesel engines and uses them in a typical gas engine. The biggest, one of the biggest differences in a diesel cycle, in a diesel engine, is that you don't need an outside spark. 
because of the differences between diesel fuel and, and regular gasoline, you can compress diesel so far that it will actually hit what's called its flash point. It will spontaneously combust or ignite. In the piston, if you look back at GIF number one, and as you see the piston pushing to the top, it actually compresses a bunch of fuel into a very, 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 very tiny space. And at the very top of that stroke, when it's at its tiniest space, it actually hits that flash point and it combusts and causes its own spark without needing a spark plug. And in GIF-1, they actually do have a spark plug, but you're saying they can just mm-hmm. get rid of the spark plug. And once it hits that that pressure point, the explosion, much like you're explaining with like the wave front of right. the entire surface lighting up, that same style of thing happens with the diesel engine. Exactly. But that's exactly. diesel fuel. Yes. Yes. So that's diesel fuel, but it is it is a strategy for ignition. In typical engines, and they've tried and they've failed in the past to do that with with gasoline as the fuel. Um, it was just it was just unreliable because of the chemical differences of the two of the two fuels. It was it was not as easy to do. So up until now, they've, like I said, it's been tried and failed multiple times. And it's not necessarily that we, like I said, that we couldn't physically do it. It was more so the control of the engine. There were too many variables going into this very precise process that they were were having a lot of misfirings or no firings at all or anything like that. And they weren't able to run a reliable engine, an engine that was reliable over a long amount of time because they couldn't account for all these variables. They couldn't control them. So that's where the systematic portion comes in, is that Mazda's now been able to create this spark plugless ignition, if you will, and control the system with a wide array of sensors in such a way that they're able to reliably get firings in each one of the cylinders with gas as the fuel. So again, you're able to sip on that fuel and have a much bigger boom for your buck. Right. And actually, was this the technology that they do use a spark plug, but they use it in such a way that by sparking, they cause this pressure to increase enough that all at once the the gas would combust? So there is a spark plug, but it's being used as a pressure source instead, not as the flame spreading. I'm sorry. Yes, you're right. Yes. So I apologize. Yeah, I, I explained that incorrectly. Um, so much like with diesel, you are compressing it to this very small portion. But yes, there is still a spark plug that's providing that initial spark in that very small space. Yes. And then it's combusting the rest of the that top layer. Right. But importantly, it's not actually lighting up the fuel. It's just literally making pressure, which is yeah, wild. Good, good catch there. Uh, I was conflating the two. All right. So that is... That's kind of the the long and short of some of the different innovations that they've had internally to the engine to get, like I said, more boom for your buck to either get more power or get um, more fuel efficiency out of these engines. But like we kind of mentioned with the the Sky Active X, it's typically not at this day and age not just one innovation internal to the engine. It's typically an innovation of systems, right? Right, right. So outside the engine, there's some really cool things happening. I'm going to touch on two of them. The first one is something we actually know a fair amount about already, regenerative braking. Uh, Relatively know a fair amount about. I'm going to go into it. So 
energy as one of these thermodynamics laws talks about it cannot be made it also cannot be lost it can only be transferred this is a very classic concept you can't just make energy out of nothing so for example when a car is shooting forward the movement energy must be transferred to something if you want to stop the car energy is transferred of course typically into brakes by squeezing these brakes against the rotating hot things, the spinning wheels effectively, and the energy is transferred from movement into heat. The brakes themselves get extremely hot. No energy is technically lost. It's just transferred to heat in the brakes. Now, energy cannot always be transferred back and forth easily. Cars cannot really transfer that heat back into moving forward. You wish you could. Instead, the brakes obviously want to cool down as you were talking about things can cool down really easily and the heat just leaves the brakes out into the air uh and the energy just then seeps into the air never to be regained or reused ever again so a portion of each gallon of gasoline that we use in our cars is actually used to heat up the outside air due to braking it seems really weird and a bad use of of the energy but of course braking is very necessary so instead the f1 engineers saw an opportunity uh they saw that we could reduce energy loss from braking and have more fuel to go faster in the race and thus more winning and their solution for doing this was instead of just using brake pads that squeeze and heat up and slow down let's break the car with something that can turn the energy back into accelerating the car forward. Okay. Keeping the energy and spinning it back up. So what they basically figured out that they could do, there's a couple different ways, but the the main way uh, is effectively like a windmill. Uh, If you're familiar with wind energy, those giant windmills, they're generators where they are a motor, an electric motor, and by spinning the electric motor in quote-unquote reverse, you start to capture the energy in a giant battery. Think of the windmill. If you didn't have this motor, those blades would be spinning much quicker. But because they're, they're doing work to spin that motor and capture energy, they're actually slower than before. Much like if you're braking, you need the slowness to slow down the wheels moving forward to brake. So engineers what they did is they attached a similar motor and battery configuration to one of the car axles that's spinning super fast and when they wanted the car to brake they forced the axle to rotate the motor in reverse this of course slowed down the axle and thus the car while transferring that energy into a battery to be used later then what they could do since they charged the battery instead of losing it to heat they can convert that energy back to accelerating the car forward back to spinning that axle uh, forward and moving fast much like an electric car does right and so in these systems though that that regenerative braking function yes you're pulling like work and, and energy out of that but that's not the only like the only braking system in the car correct there are also brake pads this is more so for a i guess a controlled brake maybe is that how i don't even know how they would activate yeah activate. yeah so so how it works is there's still real brakes yeah, yeah every car needs real brakes uh these systems they only have a maximum rate at which they can slow down that mm-hmm. axle so 
this actually is technology is in a Prius. I have one of these Priuses, as, as Zach mentioned. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Zach. Uh, and as I apply the brake, I try and stop. Let's say it that way. Uh, the first thing to slow the car down is actually the regenerative braking system. So it's charging right. up. There's a little dial. I can see that it's it's uh, recharging at a level of one or two or three, depending on how hard I'm braking. But past three, three is the maximum. It actually yep. uses real brakes to squeeze okay. the brake pad. So the brake pads are used less, which is good for replacing brake pads. But right. so what does this mean for the F1 car? Uh, effectively, the F1 car has become, like my Prius, a hybrid. <laughs> so, of course, it has one of these uh, internal combustion engines that we're referring to, the old technology that's being updated. So it can be propelled forward via that engine or it could be propelled forward via the battery and motor. In the Formula One cars, the battery and motor is much smaller in power wise relative to the engine so the engine is a primary mover and the battery motor are kind of like a boost function secondary and of course when you do a hybrid you're adding these new technologies you have to add the motor you have to add these battery systems that that requires weight and cost and reliability concerns but once you net net out all of these differences it's absolutely worth the trade-off in efficiency Right. And so you're looking at increasing the efficiency of of like the unit in general or as a whole rather than doing anything with the actual like getting more efficiency out of the engine. Right. 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 Exactly. As we mentioned, outside the engine fully. And this technology actually came to F1 in 2009. I think it returned in 2012 or something, but it's been in Priuses since like 2004 or maybe even earlier, like a a long, long time. But F1, they really Really? refined the energy saving system in a very hyper-competitive, hyper-perfectionist setting. So a lot of improvements still came from F1, even though, you know, really old Priuses had the technology dating back. Right. And so with, first of all, that's wild to think of the different ends of that performance spectrum. Um, and it's cool to see that like they are using, you, you don't look at necessarily not to harp on your car, John, but you don't look necessarily as the Prius being a powerhouse, right? Right. Am I, that, is that, am I out of line? You're out of line, but I'll, I'll accept okay. it. <laughs> all right. Um, and then, but then you look over at an F1 car and it's just the epitome of speed and performance. They're both using at their core, the exact same technology to to eke out more energy from the driving process. Right, right. Um, it's just being used in, in slightly different ways. But I think like and they are both hybrids. So I think a lot of times when you hear the word hybrid, you're like, oh, it's something that's barely going to get me up the highway speed. Like, no, you can use these systems to create really dynamic vehicles. Absolutely. Yeah. Some other things that they're doing outside the engine in F1, as well as in mm-hmm. some other car companies now, it's already trickling out. I want to I pitch this to you. So, Zach, okay. if I took the F1 engine, these you know $8 million engines and the motor system, and I swapped it into my Prius, do you think that my Prius fuel efficiency is going to get better than it standardly is, or is it going to get worse? Uh, and you're going to operate the same way? I think it's going to get worse. Right. That's that's what I'm okay. thinking, too, because the F1 engine wasn't designed for the weight and the aerodynamics of my Prius or it wasn't designed for the wheels and the tires or the roads I drive on or the temperatures I drive in or the mm-hmm. reliability I'm looking for or the oil or you know, how fast I typically drive. I don't typically drive 215 miles per hour. So 
only occasionally. Um, so these engines, they need to be designed and tuned to perform best in the expected conditions. And like I just listed off, there are so many factors that comprise these conditions and what can influence how you want to, you know, tune, quote unquote, the, the engines. Okay. So yeah. the, the first modern, quote unquote, engines considered a range of conditions that they would be asked to operate in. You know, sometimes it gets a little cold, you drive fast, you putter on the highway, and they designed the engine to perform best overall, roughly best overall in those conditions, um, one single design. But then companies started to better understand the conditions. They considered more conditions out there. Oh, you're driving on ice, and oh, you're driving really fast. I see. You, this guy's always stuck in traffic. And they better researched the impact of the design in those conditions. So they tweaked the engine, and they tuned it even better. So they still had kind of one single engine design, but they tuned it to fit the performance better. Then... Fast forward, I guess, I never really gave a time frame, but to we had talked about this at the beginning, the um, in 1955 or 53, somewhere in that range, the American Motor Company, which AMC, my parents have talked about this company, but, you know, is a relic of the past. They mm-hmm. created the Rambler Rebel Car, and it had an option to have the engine with fuel injection, as we talked about. And what's what's so crazy about fuel injection um, is that it's controlled via electricity. Okay. It's not some mechanical thing where you have to design a system and it's fixed. If you have a computer in your car, your computer can just say whenever it wants to add more fuel or less fuel or add it here at this time. Um, so the computer could kind of change its mind whenever it wanted. Gotcha. So if it thought, okay. if, if the computer thought performance would be better if injected a little less and a little bit earlier in the cycle, it would do that. Then in 1963, a similar treatment came for the spark plug. Spark plug previously was a mechanical spark. In 1963, it became electrical. So suddenly, the engine has been changing itself. Instead of being one constant design that just never changed, you just basically figured out how much fuel you wanted to turn into it. The engine could change as it wanted to, as your driving conditions changed. Gotcha. Okay. So this trend slowly built up over the decades with sensors, more sensors inside the engine, outside the engine, and they can control more things like the air inflow ports, the air outflow ports, the oxygen injection, as you mentioned, the turbocharger, deactivating cylinders and Mm -hmm. other manipulations, tons of other variables that they could control and tune to whatever the condition was at that time. So if you were driving at a certain temperature of a certain grade of hill at a certain speed and it knew certain things, it could start to tune everything to match that setting. That's more where cars are going. Mm-hmm. And each one of these changes had a little bit of performance or efficiency gain, but together the cumulative impact is fairly significant for efficiency. And so that's a great efficiency jump. I expect another efficiency jump in the future because there seems to be huge potential for when these sensors are all acting fully in concert. What I had just dreamed up with you in a very specific setting, mm-hmm. it knows Everything that's being asked of it, it can tune for that very specific moment. And then five minutes later, if it's in a totally different environment, very different settings. This sounds 
suspiciously like Fitrec from our like one of our original episodes. So this is like where AI kind of rears its episodic head, right? Of Every course. single episode, it's in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. In episode two, Zach, you talked about a app that collected a ton of data about a human and tried to predict what your risk of certain diseases were by just figuring out what that data made sense to be. So I predict probably a similar thing's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have a ton of data and a ton of variables in these engines, and you'll have even more variables once you are recording past driving habits and you, the car knows your current uh, destination, where it's trying to go, the traffic, the weather, all those other things that can influence what an engine can do. And then a final part of that leap is with data-happy companies of the world taking all of this data, think Google's of the world, and creating an algorithm that expertly optimizes how the engines should operate at every second. Maybe the Waymo vehicles of the world, that self-driving company, would institute something like this because, well, it's owned by Google. (laughs) So this is a good transition into the societal impacts of where all of this technology is going from Formula One inside the engine, outside the engine, and eventually, of course, these are going to come to our road cars. You and I, Zach, probably don't get to drive Formula One cars too much. Not as often as I would like, yeah. So let's put these into terms that we care about. Okay. So the obvious one, first one, is more fuel efficiency. So this societal impact, this is where the reveal happens. I was listening to that podcast, and I I dropped the weights to rewind what they said is that a standard engine, um, let's say someone's random Ford vehicle, gets about 30% of the gasoline is converted into rotating the wheels. 70% of that gasoline, 70% of that energy is wasted into heat or other things. Mm-hmm. And Formula One figured out that with all of these tweaks and improving their systems, they could get to an efficiency of 50%. So they're still throwing away 50% of the gasoline. That's still terrible. But they are able to jump from 30% to 50% in like a decade's time. Right, which previously we went from like 4% to it was 30% in 200 years. Yeah, yeah. Or in and, 150 years, yeah. And that's painting it a little bit unfair. You still had the Prius of the world and this Mazda car. They were right. taking steps up. They were the outliers. They're you know, not very powerful. They're kind of uh, engines designed for very specific efficiency purpose, where obviously the Formula One cars, they figured out how to get efficiency with power. Mm-hmm. So jumping right. from 30% to 50%, that means you're getting like a 67% like relative jump um, in fuel usage, which is our reduction, however you want to think about, which is awesome. So let's break that down. So The first thing you talked about, Zach, was the jet ignition, that sweet way to light up the entire bonfire of fuel at once rather than sparking from one side and letting it slowly spread. Mm -hmm. That creates about 15% relative improvement. The next thing you talked about, the sparking, the compression, that's probably somewhere in the range of about 15% improvement. There's some leaner Mm -hmm. mixtures you can get from that. Um, There's some awesome... One thing that you didn't mention is that when they're doing this pressure ignition they're spinning like a blender the gasoline in the chamber which is making it really homogenous which is allowing that to happen that that right. homogeneity is about 15 percent relative improvement so about 15 percent the first one 15 percent the second one 
the regenerative breaking, that adds about 20% up to 25% uh, improvement in fuel efficiency. So that brings us to a total, if you multiply all of those appropriately, you get to about 60% improvement. Uh, and there's probably other secret innovations that are getting it up to like the 67% jump that it is when you go from 30 to 50% overall. Right. And and that was the, the 50% and the 30% were actually the maximum efficiency. I just want to make a point that this efficiency stands for the average. So when you're not driving 215 miles per hour, when you're driving a, a standard amount, okay. it's jumping from about 20% to about 34%. So it's about the same jump relative, which is great. And so I talked about the computerized, computer-optimized engines, mm-hmm. and that's a future improvement. They don't have a good estimate of how much efficiency is coming out of that. Maybe the Google and AI Waymo have more data if they were to do something like this. And also, F1 engineers, they're very open about saying that the efficiency journey, they made great leaps so far, and their CEO has been terrible uh, trying to publicize that. That's why we don't know about it. But they have even more efficiency projects in the works that they're trying to improve and further extend the efficiency that they can get out of those engines. So what does this mean? Possibly we're talking about like a 70% uh, increase in fuel. So let's say that you have a 12-gallon tank right now in your your car. You could probably drop down to a 7-ish gallon tank and still get the same number of miles out of it. That's wild. I mean, I know that... In the grand scheme of things, that sounds like a small amount, but being able to move, a, you know, a car that's that's 25, 2200 pounds, let's say, for 350 miles on seven gallons of gas is right is pretty wild. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, there's other things, obviously, that this impacts in society, and we'll get to some of those. But with the car still in mind, a huge thing that will be coming down the pike is we're going to see way more hybridization. You've already seen this happening. You see hybrids rolling into the standard uh, Camrys and Corollas and even some of these fancier cars. Uh, but you will see that hybridization continue to go further into trucks, further into big utility vehicles, because in order to capture that uh, regenerative braking, which is the biggest factor so far for efficiency, mm-hmm. you need a hybrid system at some level. There are other actual ways to do it, but hybrid is the best and the cheapest way to do it. Right. Yeah. So I, th- I mean, I know like definitely at least growing up when hybrids first started hitting the market, and especially with Prius, there was almost kind of the feeling that like that gas engines were, were being pushed out and like the electric engines were going to take over and like that was going to be that. Right. 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 Yeah. And it was just going to be like an all electric future. And that's really not what we're probably looking at, at least like within the next 20, 30, 40 years. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I haven't really looked about 30, 40 years out. I kind of try to keep that 20 year lens. So I will, I will stop from making that, but you're making a really good point that another thing that, that I think is going to happen that we think is that, well, the people that buy cars don't, only care about efficiency and some of these benefits that we see coming down the the pipe that we'll talk about, they're consumers. Sometimes they care more about fun than function. So 
what they end up having is you can trade the efficiency gains that we're talking about for more power. Your Dodge Chargers and Hellcats or whatever those fancy hot rods are, they can increase <laughs> the horsepower even more and just instead have a maintained level of efficiency. So if they, let's say, had 20 miles per gallon right now, a decade from now, they could still just do 20 miles per gallon, but they could spend the efficiency gains and just put it into power. They could be off the line faster, crazier, things like that. Right, exactly, exactly. So what does this mean? So you, you talked about thinking that we'd have electric cars everywhere in the near future, back in the day. Well, no matter what you as a listener, as an audience member, or you, Zach, myself included, think um, the electric future is going to be, we'll push that estimate out. If you thought that we'd be at 50% electric vehicles in 30 years, it's probably going to take longer just because these these combustion engines are sticking around more than I think people projected. So they're still improving. You're still going to see a, a fair competition between these hybrid systems that don't use the battery like a all-electric vehicle, and they're going to stick around and stay competitive. That's just going to push out the battery electric car adoption. Right, yeah, and I don't know that, like, we're... Like, do you really think that... W- that is eventually what we're going to end up with is like just pure electric or do you, and this is your opinion, John, but do you think that, or it'll be more of a, a hybrid thing where you have your, your very small, maybe gas engine or, or part of your system. That's a gas engine for those high torque times. And you have, a you know, otherwise majority electrical system that is better at those cruise functions. Right. I can't make a, a good prediction if if every use case can be battery only. I, in my mind, have some cool ideas for what batteries could do in some of these big hauling vehicles, which seemingly are probably one of the last things to switch over, um, even though Tesla Semi is clearly going to be useful for, for some people. What I do think you're getting at is that combustion engines will probably be phased out slowly. Mm-hmm. So I don't know when they're going to be phased out or if they're going to be phased out fully eventually but we're gonna obviously have these cars today there's plenty of cars that are uh combustion engine only they don't have any battery systems electric is no no thing other than your you know audio and your car whatever so you see this with hybrids already you have your standard hybrids like the prius but then you have a new kind of era of prius that's the plug-in prius or a good example is the chevy volt Mm -hmm. those things actually instead of switching between battery and being propelled via the uh, combustion engine, they typically use the combustion engine as a generator to create electricity to put in the battery to then run the motor and send that forward. But there's weird in between. So I think we're probably going to move more towards plug-in hybrids. So you're going to see this the combustion engine shrink down as battery power expands and we can mm-hmm. put energy into the system via plugging it in overnight or at work or whatnot and having a small, teeny little combustion engine for when we really need electricity or if we need a lot, as you mentioned, um, if we need a lot of power at once. If you're above 70 miles per hour in a Chevy Volt, the combustion engine takes over and it's just driving the car. It's not mm-hmm. like you. It's like an old school combustion engine car uh, above 70 miles per hour. So, so I think okay. we're gonna see that where like above the the combustion engine is gonna be relegated to really high uh, speeds, and eventually, once we don't need to have it 
perform in those settings, then it's just going to be shrunk into this little generator that is eventually poof, you know, gone in these cars. But yeah. it's, it's slowly going to phase out is, is where it seems to be going because the efficiency is sticking around. Yeah, I think that's really cool. Another thing, some of the major car companies, especially in the past, say, two, three years, they really dove into the all-electric vehicle market, the battery only, no engines, and they're probably going to, some of them are going to pull back, and they're going to convert some of those resources into the hybrid advancing groups. As we mentioned, hybrids are probably going to take off, and there's going to be even more of those out there. So that's probably something we'll see. Jeep is going to be doing electric car, or uh, they're going to be doing hybrid vehicles and some of the other companies that that decided they were going to put a ton of money into the electrification. Well, they'll still use a lot of that technology. They're just going to balance it with combustion engines as well. Gotcha. And the uh, the all electric Hummer fits into where? Yeah, uh, that's going to be a moon vehicle. So don't expect <laughs> that anytime soon. Uh, we're going to need that in the future. But uh, you, you have you seen that they are they're supposed to come out with one next summer? You're kidding me. I I, I had swear I swear to you. Yeah. Yeah, that was, I think that was maybe a Super Bowl commercial, wow. if I'm remembering right. Yeah. Well, that actually makes a lot of sense because the Hummer is absolutely huge and heavy, <laughs> and yeah. a lot of these current uh, electric cars need a lot of space for the batteries, and the batteries are very heavy. So if you get right. into like a Tesla Model X, the like SUV version, I think they're like 5,000 pounds. I think you were referencing cars uh, a mm-hmm. few minutes ago in the range of 2,000 to 2,500. Well- Batteries wow, are heavy, so a Hummer, huge, yeah. a Hummer will be on brand in its very off-brand way. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Let's zoom out past the, the vehicles themselves, and let's talk about uh, just two other really quick things. So cars aren't the only thing that use combustion engines. You of have course. generators, as we talked about, are actually in cars. Generators are also used at sporting events, at tailgates, or in RVs, whatnot, to generate electricity to be used. Boats, they typically use diesel engines, but as uh, combustion gasoline engines get better, you might see some of that technology transfer to boats and improve the boat efficiency too. So you're going to see more efficiency across the board in other places that typically use engines today. Yeah, and that's it's going to be fascinating because I think we're going to see a bigger push for these you know, more hybrid vehicles in these wider use cases. So it's going to become you know, adapted more outside of just the small four-door sedan consumer consumer car market. And so the the last thing that is also pretty important that the impact of these improvements will be is just better climate change. It's This is definitely not a solution, but as we talked about with 2007, 2008 and the inconvenient truth, they're really trying to push this technology to improve global warming, climate change, etc. So I don't honestly have a great sense of how much it'll be improved, but this is definitely something that will help push the efforts forward. You and I are going to use less gas. We're going to emit less, you know, carbon dioxide into the air Mm -hmm. and have fewer greenhouse gases or however people think about it these days. So that'd be great to take a small dent out of the climate crisis and improve things there. Yeah. Circling kind of all the way back to to the beginning, it would be really cool to see some more of those governmental push. I guess this is me getting preachy, but see more governmental pushes to incentivize the you know the move towards these more hybrid vehicles. I think that would be really, really awesome. But alas, right on. Well, 
let's wrap it up there. Uh, talk to me, Zach. Do you have any takeaways? What, what, what are you kind of thinking about as the future takes place in this combustion-improved realm? Yeah, I think it's I think it's cool to look at some of this technology because I think when you you know, especially on the paradigm of electric vehicles and electric motors versus these, you know, versus internal combustion engines. I think there is a tendency to look at it very much of the old school, new school or the new technology, the old technology, um, the future, the past, things like that. And I think it's I think we're shooting ourselves in the foot to have such a narrow viewpoint. These hybridization efforts, I think, are really cool. And I think we're going to continue to find different ways to kind of harvest that energy regardless of if it's internal to that engine or not right i think it's cool if we all you know look have that paradigm shift and look for that both these are available and have their own merits and you can also have one at the same time being you know conscious of the climate right 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 what about you john what do you think your key takeaways for today are yeah so I knew nothing about engines coming into this two weeks ago when we kicked off this topic. I had literally just heard that little podcast snippet and left it there. I'm now watching Formula One races. Uh, Netflix has a great show. But what I've taken away is despite using oil and gasoline and all of these limited fossil fuels, I'm impressed by the improvements that they can make. And I realize that these combustion engines, we kind of use them as a crutch uh, we want to get all the way to battery powered and a real electric sustainable future. I can't wait for that to happen, mm-hmm. but I am impressed and proud is maybe a decent word that these companies are making improvements. They're helping us uh, bridge the combustion future, whether it's bridging the future to battery electrics or they're just, you know, holding on for dear life and trying to keep combustion relevant. It's it's hard to to debate that, but I'm glad that things are pushing in the right direction and that the societal pressure to improve efficiency is still happening. Right. Yeah, this was a I was a little bit worried that this was maybe going to be a doom and gloom episode, but it was it was pretty positive. It was pretty cool to see the progressive stances that a lot of these corporations are taking towards the the electric, the electric vehicle market. Yeah. And it'll be great to see hopefully more companies will keep taking steps into the electrification now that there's a sort of pathway to electrification for cons- uh, a company rather than just ditching their old technology they can slowly adopt it that hopefully will bode well for companies staying alive and wanting to adopt electric to slightly stay out of the curve mm-hmm. and somehow try and compete with tesla right right yeah goal at the end of the day always you gotta catch up to old musky <laughs> Exactly. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been awesome. Great. Peace out, everyone. All right. Take care. Stay safe. Bye. Wash your hands. Hello, everybody. This is John again. Thank you for listening. That concludes everything we wanted to discuss in the episode. Before you go, we want to encourage you to join and participate in the newsletter that accompanies this podcast, specifically this episode. If you're not familiar, we have a newsletter where Zach and I will ask and answer a question and then elicit responses if you are comfortable from the audience. We will then put those responses into the following week's newsletter and ask a new question that builds off the next episode. 
This week, Zach and I were inspired by the internal combustion engine's ability to evolve and stay relevant. So we thought of this question and we'll answer it in our newsletter. Throughout your life, what is something like a product or trend or industry that has stayed alive and somewhat relevant far longer than you expected? To access and sign up for that newsletter, go to our website, weareheretomorrow.com. There you can subscribe to our newsletter, immediately get the current edition, and respond to the email to join the conversation. 